Welcome to Matthew's World of Wine and Drink, an educational podcast dedicated to teaching you all about the wines of the world, the different grape varieties, the different regions, and the history and culture of wine. Talking with uh, Bruce Taylor from Kono, which is a winery in Marlborough which makes Sauvignon Blanc. Could you just introduce yourself and your background and how you got into wine and why you're making Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough? Oh, sure. I'd be happy to, Matthew. So, kia ora everyone. My name is Bruce Taylor. I'm uh, Chief Winemaker here for Kono and Tohu Wines. So, we are kind of a unique story in New Zealand as we're a, owned by a Māori organisation. So, for those of you who don't know, I'm sure you do know, but Māori people are the indigenous people of New Zealand. So, we're here for sort of 800 years before the uh, Europeans turned up, which is only for us about 200 years ago. So, we're all sort of a bit of a new nation down here, obviously. And um, so, our owners, so we're owned by essentially like a... Um, what we would call an iwi, which is a, a group of families basically who sort of had land set aside for them under the colonial powers about 140 years ago. It was about 40 families. Um, so they have held on to this land sort of tightly through the years. And uh, these days there's about, f- so you can only be a, a shareholder in the company, I guess, by being a member of one of those original families or a descendant of those families. So those. Uh, families are now about 4,000 shareholders, so they own um, Kono, which is the uh, sort of overarching food and beverage company. And um, within the within that group of Kono, they do a whole lot of uh, different products, basically of the land and sea that comes out of the top of the South Island. So what we would call Titauihu, which is um, sort of covers yeah basically the top of the South Island of New Zealand. So as, as well as me, and I look after all the wine, uh, we do a bunch of horticulture, so we grow apples and pears, kiwi fruit, a bit of hops for beer, or quite a lot of hops for beer actually. Um, we do a whole bunch of greenlit mussels, so quite sort of famous, the Marlborough greenlit mussels out of the Marlborough Sounds, um, exported to the US and many other sort of countries around the world. Um, we have a Another couple of businesses as well. We actually have a, a um, craft brewery as part of our company called Hop Federation. And what else do we do? We have a sort of a seafood distribution company and various other things, but all to do with products of the top of the South Island. So in 1998, it was, um, you know, the wine industry in Marlborough was really, really just starting to boom, I guess, starting to expand greatly. And um, that's when our owners sort of jumped in and they did. This is before my time. They did about 3,000-odd cases of Sauvignon Blanc just from a contract grower made in a custom crush winery with a contract winemaker, so very much a virtual sort of winery. And we sort of built up from from there to these days we're doing sort of about a quarter of a million cases, about 250,000. That's uh, 12 bottle cases. Um, And these days we own, what do we own? We own sort of four different vineyards across Melbourne, the Nelson region, uh, quite a modern winery here in the Awateri Valley, and um, and me, obviously. So I came on board um, in 2008, so I'm our second winemaker, essentially, across those, what are we now, 24 years. Yeah, so I've been here quite a while. But my personal story is I'm sort of a a late... um, a late comer to the wine industry, I guess, after um, I went back to university and studied winemaking here in New Zealand in 2000, so I was 31 at the time, so I sort of had, um, <coughs> had uh, you know, sifted around the world doing various jobs and lots of travelling and not really doing anything uh, particularly career-oriented, I suppose, and then started getting interested in wine, a girlfriend of mine back in 
at that time was uh, quite into into wine and I can't say that I was really at that stage but I was sort of looking around for something to do really after doing a lot of traveling overseas actually through the US and Canada and South America I got back to New Zealand and we had moved together to an area uh, Hawke's Bay which is up in the North Island quite a wine growing area and um, yeah, I went to university for one year to see if I see if I had any sort of affinity for the the job, I suppose, or for the for the world of wine. And em- embarrassing, really, to think about how little I knew back then. You know, when I sort of was first getting introduced to proper wine tasting and all that sort of thing. And um, I was a cigarette smoker then too, so that probably didn't really help actually tasting anything at all, <laughs> apart from really oaky wines. I liked them at the time. Yeah, so I went back to university, did the three-year degree, and then sort of like lots of Kiwi winemakers or budding winemakers set off around the world and sort of travelled uh, doing north-south vintages for a few years there and uh, lived for quite some time in Margaret River in Western Australia. I was quite into my surfing at the time as well, so it was a pretty awesome spot to try out a little bit of winemaking and go surfing a lot. Yeah, which isn't surfing, not usually very compatible with proper jobs or careers or things like that, <laughs> which might explain the 10 years before that. Yeah, so I was very lucky to sort of after doing a bit of travel overseas to come back to New Zealand and I ended up as an uh, assistant winemaker here for Villa Maria, so quite a large, sort of um, well known company here in Marlborough and I was very very lucky at that time there was the industry in New Zealand and in Marlborough in particular was just planting like crazy it was just expansion everywhere and um, lots of lots of lots of jobs I guess so I was sort of lucky enough to pick up this job with uh, Torhu back then and so 2009 was my first vintage working for these guys and I was again making wine in these contract wineries for a few years until we purchased a sort of a a, an existing bricks and mortar winery out in the Arbitary Valley which is uh, we purchased that in 2012 so 2013 was our first vintage into here and I think that first year we were around that sort of 800 ton mark so that's um, that's our tons like a thousand kilograms and these these days we put about three and a half thousand tons through the winery so we've sort of grown well really from inception and then having the winery itself sort of took took things to another level, I, th- I think, you know, another level of quality really, being able to pick your grapes exactly when you want to, not having to fit into a custom crush winery and having to c- sort of compromise on lots of things. So I think that was a real game changer for us at 2013 and we've sort of gone from strength to strength from there. So there's lots of things to touch on there. When I uh, did my WCT Level 3, I had a Slovenian... Uh, instructor who said you should have a cigarette before tasting wine because it just kind of <laughs> you find beer does that for me yeah exactly yeah. <laughs> uh, but the other thing uh, more seriously is the Maori culture which is very integral to New Zealand's history mm. when I visited New Zealand I was fascinated by how young New Zealand's culture is in many ways because obviously yeah. in winemaking, it's very young, but even the Maori culture only dates back to, what, the 1200s. So New, yeah. New Zealand is a, a very, very young country. And yeah. how does that inform the culture of New Zealand in general? I think we're sort of, um, yeah, I guess we are really sort of just out of that colonial stage for sort of, you know, for the likes of myself, like the white families, I guess. So we're really... Um, you know, yeah, I guess we're sort of, I guess we would consider ourselves anyway to be quite sort of innovative and we're not really beholden or, you know, we don't have a lot of tradition to sort of um, 
to be respectful of, particularly in that wi- in that winemaking world. So, you know, unlike the the sort of prescriptive um, European appellations, you know, we can just do really whatever the hell we want in New Zealand. You can plant whatever you want, and you can do what you like, basically. So, I think that that's re- really where the sort of success of our wine industries come out of that. Um, that very what what we call sort of a, in colloquial terms down here what we call a number eight wire sort of um, mentality which is number eight wire is what you use on fencing on your farm so it's that sort of if something breaks or you want to make something that you don't have or you you know you live miles from town because we I guess we sort of still consider ourselves to be a fairly rural sort of um, country. Uh, the number eight wire is what you'd use to fix anything basically you can stick stuff together with number eight wire and you can cobble things together so I think in that we you know that sort of mentality came into the wine industry back in the you know we, we really didn't have any well uh, there was sort of Dalmatian families that started out uh, you know from Croatia and Serbia back in the sort of turn of the century 1900s that sort of dabbled in a bit of winemaking for for themselves so sort of fairly rough stuff I guess going on and then the modern industry really didn't get going until the mid-70s. They planted, was the first Sauvignon Blanc that even went into the ground in Marlborough. Very controversial, I suppose, for the time, or certainly all the locals in Marlborough thought, you're lunatics, you know. It's like pretty, it's pretty cold down here. It's pretty cold and frosty and, you know, pretty wind-blowing and poor soil. So the, the land that they first started developing here was, um, you know, very, very poor country, very um, rocky and just not much good for anything apart from sticking a couple of sheep on and letting them wander around <laughs> yeah. so but perfect for grapes obviously so pretty um some good foresight there from i think it was the guys from uh Martour and and montana back then that sort of first put the sauvignons in the ground and and it's just gone from strength to strength from there yeah it's been I mean, we're really lucky, I think you know it's been the the engine room for the whole industry here, and it's allowed us all to sort of branch out into playing around with all these other varieties and ways of making wine and doing sort of funkier, more interesting things whilst having Sauvignon Blanc as just the the uh, the engine that drives it all and sort of pays for it all, really. Yeah, it's fascinating to think about the development of New Zealand wines. I was born in 1976, so three years after Sauvignon Blanc was first planted in Marlborough. We've kind of lived, me, very distantly, but more uh, actively during the development of New Zealand's wine industry in comparison to the Loire Valley, which also plants Sauvignon Blanc but yeah. goes back centuries. How is New Zealand kind of assessing itself right now in terms of regionality and talking about itself and how to promote the wines? What we've certainly seen in the last few years, that I mean, well, in the last 14 years really, I think that the GFC, the 2008, the sort of climate, uh, the um, economic climate back then really sort of took us all by surprise a little bit and sort of really put a bit of a spanner in the works for a few years there while everyone was, you know, we were all blindly carrying on thinking that um, we just had this juggernaut and we just didn't have to put any effort in and we could just make, do whatever we wanted and we'd sell it like crazy at very high prices all around the world, you know, was always out of um, out of sync, the supply and demand, there was more demand in the world than we could ever supply Sauvignon. So that sort of, um, <coughs> I think after that, we everyone sort of, you know, we had to try a little bit harder and we had to really sort of point out some of the differences in what we were doing. So that sort of sub-regionality is, I, I would say, the big difference that we've seen in Marlborough Sauvignon particularly 
coming in over that sort of last 10 to 12 years as people have moved a little bit I mean we're a, we're a good example of it of people have moved away from a generic Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc to sort of really starting to explore the sub-regions and you know when you think back to how young the industry is here compared to you know compared to Loire or you know basically anywhere else in the world more or less um, you know they've had hundreds and hundreds of years to figure out all these sort of little uh, differences in the in the terroirs around the place and the difference between the side of the river and that side of the river and the altitudes and the different soil types and all that sort of stuff and so I think you know what what happened in that last sort of 10-12 years was more of a focus on the sub-regions and more of that sort of drilling down into the uniqueness of each of them and trying to capture those sort of um uh, yeah trying to trying to highlight the differences rather than sort of just whacking it all into one giant tank and banging it out at the uh, in enormous volumes which you know to be fair there's still a lot of that going on but I think the more sort of reputable producers or those that are um, those that are possibly a little bit less corporate or a bit less multinational are sort of tending to see the, f- the future and drilling down into these little sub-regions you know I mean Mal- Marlborough Sauvignon sort of is, is almost in a, in a way a victim of its sort of own success you know on a global scale where it's been it's very hard to excuse me it's very hard to you know in my opinion to find a, a bad one really they're all made to a, a pretty good standard and you know, Sauvignon Blanc's pretty forgiving of um of ripeness you know it's one of the few varieties I've, I've ever worked with where you can actually you know pick it pretty pretty early and deal with that ferocious acidity that you would get in a you know with a with essentially unripe grapes and you can sort of get away with it with Marlborough Sauvignon so that's sort of been you know what the what the big corporates are doing the big multinationals are still whacking out that enormous those big volumes big blends and all that sort of stuff but I guess for the for the likes of our company you know the size that we are I mean we you know we crushed three three thousand tons from New Zealand did five hundred thousand this year something like that so we're pretty pretty small in the big scheme of things so there's really no uh, well you know in my opinion there's no future for us trying to compete with people crushing 50,000 tons 60,000 tons and you know the economies of scale and the volumes that they can sort of put out you know there's no um there's no question that we'll never be up there competing with them we don't really have any ambition to so so what do you do you know you concentrate on quality and you concentrate on your unique little parts of the world and you try and highlight those and try and appeal to I guess a different sort of a customer base that might you know that that are hopefully more interested in some of the nuances of it and something a little bit beyond just a a big sort of tropical thiole sort of Marlborough Sauvignon and that's certainly what we do it was one of the big big attractions for me coming to work at this company was working for Villa Maria I felt um, some of the best fruit that I saw when when I was there you know in my opinion was was coming from vineyards in the area where Tohu Kono's main vineyard is these days and the sort of upper Awatiri Valley so it was very unique fruit unique fruit quite different to everything else that was coming in the in the uh, front end of the winery um, which was from the more sort of well-established sort of older vineyard areas in the Wairau Valley so we so it was a big it was a big attraction for me sort of seeing these what I thought were like really like our, our best wines just getting blended away you know they're like you might have whatever volume of that and but it would just disappear off into a into a giant blend essentially and um out out the door bottled and sold and drunk within you know within minutes um but it felt to me like there was something to be you know there was something to be sort of explored out there by getting into these little areas and really sort of highlighting the differences you know 
like I get I guess the example there is sorry I'm probably veering off topic a bit but the um like our main what we call our Fenua Awa vineyard sits at sort of about 250 meters above sea level so like 800 feet I think something like that so it's quite sort of high altitude Mo most of Marlborough is valley floor so it's essentially sea level um you know the w more well established areas are uh, have a more sort of stone stony sort of free draining soils at the bottom of the bottom of valleys you know and y you've been to New Zealand so you sort of know you've either got a flat valley and some mountain that just goes straight up basically so you're really only planting in the valley floors so for us you know we sort of um we've really sort of pushed and promoted this this uniqueness that we get in the upper Awatiri so a much much colder sort of hotter days in summer but a massive diurnal shift as well so we're getting you know and uh, sorry I don't know what it is in Fahrenheit but we'd get 35 degree days you know during the day and then we would be down to sort of five six degrees overnight so it's a really big shift as soon as soon as that sun goes down you know at the latitude that we're at and at the altitude that we're at the um you know the, the difference in, in in heat from here to from our end of the valley you know 40 kilometers from the ocean down to you know, as you work your way down to the sea, there's just so many of these little sort of sub-regions and they're all sort of providing slightly different uh, flavour profiles and characteristics and different sort of acid structures and all that sort of stuff. So it's all there to be sort of explored by um, by people that are interested in it, I guess. Yeah, which I think is just the maturing of our industry, really. We're just sort of starting to starting to realize what we've got and there's people out there sort of that are interested in exploring it which is pretty cool as a winemaker you know you don't necessarily want all your every vineyard you got just disappearing into one giant blend and then out the door right so you mentioned the maturing of the industry so that's one thing i find with new zealand the consist the quality is very consistent you're likely to find a, a bad new zealand wine it can, it can be it can feel generic that it's just representing a style you're talking about exploring different sites different regions to really express um, different um, types of climate and soil type and do you find that's a an overall trend in New Zealand I, th I think it I think it is at a at a certain level you know I'm not sure we're seeing it amongst the really big you know and I mean, in my opinion, but unfortunately, these days we're sort of seeing more and more of a domination of the really big, the big, big multinationals. You know, like um, Constellation, Pernod Ricard. These guys are are pretty sort of dominant in the area. Although, I mean, in a more positive way, a very large New Zealand company is sort of um, challenging challenging their dominance of the industry, I suppose. But so I think I think with those guys, you there's probably limited interest from the you know from I guess I shouldn't name names but from so you know I don't think there's much interest in in you know the monkey bays of the world veering off into sub-regionality or anything so yeah it's sort of up it's up to us really it's up to the smaller sort of producers and there's you know there's a there's a fair amount of us as well thankfully so yeah I think you'll just see more and more and more of that I mean, I mean to be fair my, my Cornell Sauvignon is a multi sub-regional blend you know and it's by far the largest volume wine that I make so I mean we're all doing it to a degree it's just your willingness to also veer off into these little sub blocks you know I mean I, I do three three tiers of Sauvignon that Cornell Sauvignon is our sort of big big blend all exported multi sort of sub region the Tohu is um, from uh, the Awateri Valley so it's only from this sort of sub sub valley little southern valley in Marlborough and then we do a, a reserve Sauvignon as well called our Fenua series which is actually from a from a sub block of our vineyard so it's that sort of 
drilling down you know with providing something for something for everyone I guess is the idea but also not just ignoring the really sort of cool little corners of your vineyard that you've always loved and have given you something a bit different what about um kind of commercial perceptions of Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc most people recognize it immediately they like it because they know exactly what it is do you want to change those perceptions and open up perceptions of Marlborough or or do you feel like confined that you have to make that style of wine yeah, it's an interesting, isn't it? These, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm not too sure. To be honest, there's two schools of thought, isn't there? It's you sort of, you do have to sort of respect the success of the ver- variety and the way that we've made these wines, you know. And I guess in practical terms too, the you know the techniques that we use to make you know la- larger volume Sauvignons, which is you know machine harvesting and stainless steel fermentation and cool stuff. It's um, you. You sort of don't have a lot of choice with that. You can't exactly go out there and handpick thousands and thousands of hectares, or not in New Zealand. There's no people, you know. <laughs> um, and so you are you are sort of, I guess you're sort you're sort of steered in in that direction, you know. And I'm not I'm not sure my I'm not sure I'd be selling 250,000 cases of Sauvignon Blanc every year if I made them all sort of full solids and barrel and funky and weird like some of the older ones that we used to sort of play around with mm-hmm. yeah so you do have to sort of I mean I, I do think we are really fortunate to have such a you know such a distinctive variety that you know I traveling around the world most wine regions in the world would sort of would you know um, sell their grandmothers to have a variety that's you know that sells out every every year. I mean, we just never have old, you know, touch wood. We never have old stock. It's just, it's in, it's bottled, it's um, sold and drunk within sort of twelve months, really. And then you're into the next one. It is, it is the sort of proverbial cash cow, I suppose. So you do have to sort of respect that. It's that is what allows us to um, to do all the sort of funkier, more interesting, you know, from a winemaking perspective, the more interesting things. So you sort of play you play around the edges. I mean there is a bit of innovation in that in that space with new new yeasts and everyone you know, they everyone will have their own take on Lee's contact and fermentation temperatures and may maybe a little bit of use of older barrels or things like that. There's there's always that sort of that personal stamp on it, but I think I think really it's the, like the the differences that I that I see are coming out of the of the vineyards. Really, it's that it's the um, it's the terroir driven sort of styles that actually will, dif- will differentiate what's within those big blends. But I mean, we are, we are lucky, you know. It's amazing. You travel anywhere in the world, and almost every apart from like the total hipster natural wine bars, there, there'll be a Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc in every every bar and restaurant and hotel bar in the world basically yeah which is pretty incredible considering how small we are you know yes an incredible success success story considering it's planted in 1973 for the first time 50 years ago the bulk of those plantings is from 2000 onwards as well that's like that's what we're most mostly most of us have got sort of you know there's been enormous plantings in the last sort of five five years which are all starting to come on stream now but most of what we've got out there is you know under 20 years old basically yeah so um a boom industry and as we've mentioned consistent quality so let's talk about um sauvignon blanc in the context of marlborough but also universally personally and i think other people in the wine industry can be dismissive of sauvignon blanc because the aromas are so obvious that it's not like riesling which is intense and age worthy but the more i've thought about sauvignon blanc the more interested i've become in the grape variety 
and that it does um, have diff very different expressions around the world. There's Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc, but there's Loire, and there's different expressions in Loire. There's Bordeaux, there's rich or bodied wines, there's oak-aged wines, there's sweet wines. So Sauvignon Blanc has many different expressions. Yeah. And I'm wondering how easy is it to work with? You say it's very, it works very well in Marlborough, but it's a high vigor, great variety, and the soil's relatively fertile in yeah. New Zealand. So how do you deal with uh, Sauvignon Blanc in um, Marlborough? Yeah, yeah it, is a, it is a lot of that. I mean, it always comes back to balance in the vineyard, doesn't it? Which, whatever variety you're talking about. So there is a lot of, um, yeah, I guess, I guess like you say, it is, it is a vigorous variety. And um, there's, I guess there's a lot of work with rootstocks in particular because we're all, we're all grafted here. We're essentially working with um, the mass selection clone, which is sort of, yeah, there's, there's been people dab, dabble in other, in other clones that have come out but essentially all of Marlborough and New Zealand is under mass under mass selection so the 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 rootstocks have been a way that people have sort of controlled controlled vigor and tried to sort of line up the the uh, rootstocks with a sort of appropriate free draining soils or heavier soils or you know or, or whatever um, but it, it is a, it is a challenge I mean there's a lot of uh, I guess un, you know unlike um, a lot of varieties around the world we are we're probably trimming you know two to depending on the season two to three times during the during the growing season so you've got a lot of vegetative growth obviously um if you know if anyone's been been to Marlborough they are they are big they are big lush sort of dark you know very dark green bright green vines so sort of controlling that that vigor is is a bit of a challenge and certainly as far as um disease pressure goes because you are ending up with quite a a crowded fruit fruit zone so you know opening that up is, is probably one of those one of those um, choices which uh, people you know that is one of the things that you can really change your sort of varietal expression depending on your approach to that so whether you're you know completely exposing your fruit if you're if you're after yeah a lot of I guess a lot of fruit exposure to sun will sort of toughen up your your um your skins it'll give you a little bit more sort of phenolics in your skin a little bit more exposed fruit or that more sort of dappled dappled light which is um which is probably more the more the norm i suppose so you're trying to get airflow so that you don't have disease obviously um but you're still trying to get some some exposure in there and not and not be completely shaded yeah it's a uh, it's tricky i mean what i think what we're what we're seeing now too is more of the sort of volatility from climate change i guess so it's you're going you're going into a season thinking you know you need to you need to maybe open up your canopies because you're they're predicting la nina weather patterns so you're going to have a lot of a lot of moisture and humidity so you need your sprays to get in there and you need airflow and uv light um and then you can have a very a very dry sort of summer or a dry growing season which you know then you're dealing with sunburnt fruit and sort of small berries and, and then you're having to do something about your phenolics and that sort of stuff in your in your skins i suppose so yeah it's a, it's a i mean there's lots of different approaches but it is a it's a, it's a cha it's a challenge that particularly that growth i suppose because you know they are high high vigor sites i mean i mean some of these parts of marlborough uh, can be cropping at sort of 25, 30 tons per hectare, which is pretty enormous. You know, most of most of my vineyards that I source from are in that sort of 10 to 15, which I think is a, a good um, sort of middle ground for concentration and power without putting too much load on your vines as well. But we but we're operating out of sort of cooler, 
yeah, cooler little sub-valleys, which are not necessarily having quite as much vigour as some of the other parts parts of Marlborough. I mean, Mar Marlborough really varies a lot from, you know, very very deep sort of alluvial soils, what, what used to be sort of... Um, <coughs> Sounds a bit rude, but it's sort of like what used to be sort of vegetable country, you know, what we'd call potato country, which is sort of very high, high vigor, deep topsoil down by the ocean. So th those, so those sites will use, you know, some of them will use no irrigation, and they would, and they can just crop, you know, very high levels and get, and get it ripe as well, which is the, which is the other thing, and get it off before it, the botrytis kicks in. Whereas you know some of our our sites which are sort of a little bit more stony and sort of austere and from the climate are, are cropping at like a third of those levels so there's a, there's a wide range of uh, uh, approaches I guess geographically it's quite a, a reasonably large area you know so it's like Mal Marlborough is sort of comprised of a whole lot of different different areas which all have their own different challenges I guess you'd say. So you've talked about uh, phenolics a lot of those phenolics comes from the skins so can you talk about skin contact? So we, um, I think, you know, back when I first moved to Marlborough, we would sort of actively pursue skin contact to the point of um, machine harvesting, holding stuff in presses for sort of, you know, up to 10 to 12, 24 hours before we'd press them off. So you're really trying to get all those, um, I guess, as I understand it, like the thiol sort of precursors in Marlborough Sauvignon are all sitting in those skins. So it sort of depends on what what sort of style of Sauvignon you're getting or what you're after really. So those high skin contact varieties are, or sorry, that high skin contact approach to winemaking is, you know, has its certain challenges. For one thing, you do pick up a lot of phenolics and sort of um, sort of harder compounds, I suppose, which you then need to deal with in your wine or in your, in your juice, I guess, to get rid of those. But you are also picking up a lot of those as I said, those thiol precursors are getting into your wine as well, so you can get those very, you know, the very classic Marlborough, those really sweaty sort of um, high thiol passion fruit pulp sort of um, style of wine. So the very, very punchy sort of real standout in wine shows, you know, they're the darlings of wine shows because they're just so expressive and so aromatic and really sort of a, a punch in the face wines, which, you know, pers which it's not really my cup of tea, I suppose. Those sort of wines I, f I find a little wearying, you know, they're sort of in interesting, great in a wine show, stand out, you get gold, gold medals all the time, but they're sort of a little bit, uh, a little bit tough by the time you get halfway through the bottle, I suppose, in my opinion. <laughs> so I guess we, you know, per personally we have, we, we don't do any sort of extended skin contact in the winery, and we're pretty much relying on, like a lot of producers here these days too, we are relying on the skin contact that you're picking up from machine harvesting and your time and your transport. So, I mean, we, we would be a, f a fairly typical example. So, say, if we're machine, you know, and pretty, I would say 99.5% of all Sauvignon Blanc in Marlborough would be machine harvested. So, you, we're machining off into a, into a truck. It might take, like, you know, like a, um, so they're like 10, 10, 12 tonne trucks, basically. So, that, that would take maybe three quarters of an hour, depending on the crop level. It might take an hour to harvest that, to put that to get it from to fill your truck up essentially and then that truck would travel for maybe an hour and a half to get to the winery so you know wind, windy country roads is um takes takes a while there's no vineyard no well we don't have vineyards right next door to the winery and then you know they're getting into a receival bin so maybe another hour until the press is up and running and then a th maybe a three-hour press cycle as well so by the so by the time you've sort of squeezed your your grapes dry you've really probably had that sort of five to six hours skin contact which I think is p 
pretty much what we're after. I, I have vineyards that are further away that take, you know, sort of two and a half hours to get to the winery, and those ones we, we do find that we're picking up more sort of phenolics and um, maybe we're not pressing those quite as hard. Or we're, or we're using sort of higher rates of bentonite in our juice to try and deal with those phenolics and some of those compounds. So, so skin contact sort of plays a, plays a part. I mean, it definitely plays a part, but I don't think there's too many people out there these days actively sort of pursuing it by holding grapes in, in presses for, for ages and ages, essentially. I think we all feel that, you know, there's really a there's real trade-off there between having to having to deal with those phenolics and that sort of roughness that you get in the wines, which you know you could do by doing press cuts as well, I guess. So if you had long skin contact, you can always press off a little bit um, or cut away a little bit earlier. But you know, for for us, and this is sort of not—I mean, I, I find it's sort of almost a little bit hard to believe in the world of wine. But we make no press cuts on our wine, so our grapes will come in and they just get pressed to to, to dryness. It's all combined. So we try and our our approach to that would be to be quite protective. With um, with with sulfur, uh, sulfur and you know temperature control basically. So you're trying to harvest your better blocks at night when it's really cold, um, and then we would essentially try and oxidise those harder pressings. So that last sort of hour in the press when you really you've probably got you know 80% of your juice out of your out of your um, grapes, and that's been quite protective. So you're adding sulfur and making sure it's into a tank and sort of looked after temperature wise. Whereas that la- that very last bit, we would let go, you know, to let it brown basically in the in the press tubs or in the press, and that oxid and that oxidation sort of seems to uh, to us anyway, is sort of resolves those um those issues that you can get with phenolics and things like that. So we're not fining at all either. So so basically all of our all of our sauvignons at least um, could be just because I'm a bit lazy, but we are not getting any fining whatsoever. They get bentonite for protein stability, but they're not being you know, there's a million. I'm sure you know. There's a million different sort of products out there that every wine uh, wine accessory salesperson will try and sell you to <laughs> the latest greatest thing from France or Italy or the US or whatever, or Australia. A lot of it's coming out of Australia. Um, to to you know, there's a lot of products that you can use these days, millions and millions of them. But for us, we we just keep it pretty simple, really. And I think if you've got good fruit, good clean fruit, and um, and you're can deal with it at sort of juice stage, sort your phenolics out at juice stage, then all that sort of, uh, the um, that body that you get from your skin contact and all that stuff just adds to the, adds to the wine, sort of certainly seems to sort of add a bit of body to it. I think what we see here too a lot, and I guess it does, it is sort of a, uh, there's some parallels with skin contact, is that a lot of the Marlborough industry now is doing um, gel flotation for their, for their settling, if you know what I mean by that, or it's sort of like ant like the opposite of settling if you like so you're essentially super saturating your juice um, so your juice needs to come in at 16 degrees so it's coming in quite warm so you'll have to warm your your juice this is post pressing um, and then they essentially float uh, float it so rather than the cold settling you know you which is what we do you bang it in a tank let it settle for three days and then rack your clear juice off the top fill TLEs these are like a much more sort of um, industrial approach that's happening in Melbourne these days is this gel flotation technique, which is something I first saw, you know, years ago in Italy. It was a, it was um, something we were doing quite a lot in northern Italy for the sort of the larger volume wines. And it was, it's, it's basically if you don't have refrigeration in your winery, you can sort of supersaturate your juice with um, really high pressure nitrogen, 
one of the places I worked actually used oxygen, which was completely wacky, but I think they just didn't have any nitrogen. So you supersaturate it with nitrogen and it just pulls all of those, um, you know, the compounds that you'd be hoping to settle out over three days. It just takes them all to the top of the tank and then you basically pump your clear juice off the bottom. But to me, I don't really sort of like that technique. It's a, it's a good way to save money. You use a lot less um, refrigeration resources. It's very fast. So you can have wine sort of... or you can have wine into fermentation within sort of maybe seven or eight hours of being in the winery, which is pretty pretty quick and it's good turnover, you know, really pretty quick quick and saves you money. But in my opinion doesn't really make better wine. I think it's that that three hour, that three days, you know, two, three, four days of cold settling, that contact with with the um with your with all you know that contact with lees basically that gives you sort of that that body and a little bit more sort of yeah a bit more interest in the wine and it sort of adds another layer to it I guess so similar to sort of what you're getting from skin contact you are getting not just pure juice separated immediately you're actually getting time for um, those compounds which are settling out to sort of uh, feed back into the wine I suppose so it's sort of how we all used to make Sauvignon Blanc but as sort of you know I guess as the money pressures and everything have come on. People, there's more and more of this sort of industrial approach, which is a bit un understandable, but sort of unfortunate, I reckon, for the overall quality. So, what temperature do you ferment the Sauvignon Blanc at? Do you allow it to kind of build up a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I mean, we would sort of, you know, we'd rack it, rack it, we'd settling it sort of eight eight degrees Celsius, um, and then we would rack that off. You know, RDV, the filter the lees in with it. I try and filter those lees and follow in behind as well because there's a fair bit of um, good stuff in those lees. And then we would kick off ferments at, you know, and, and basically everything in stainless steel is being um, being inoculated with, um, you know, selected dried yeast. Um, and you'd inoculate those at sort of 16 to 18 degrees. That sort of 16 degrees would be normal for us. So you're warming them up to 16 degrees get your yeast in there, give it to probably twen 24 hours just to build up that population with no, we just don't touch them essentially, we don't mix them or do anything to them. After 24 hours we'd give it, uh, give it, give the tank a mix so yeast are distributed and you don't get any of that sort of temperature stratifying and then we would try and get that temperature down as sort of quickly as possible without shocking the hell out of the yeast essentially. So, mo so most of our tanks here are fermenting at sort of 10 to 12 degrees Celsius which is pretty pretty cold. It's co cold to the touch, you know. Yeah. So you're really trying to control that rate of fermentation. So you're looking for sort of one to one and a half bricks uh, drop each day. So you're trying to follow that, you know, that really nice sort of fermentation curve. And as you're sort of into the last, the last sort of twenty percent of your ferment, sort of below five bricks, we would start taking off. Um, uh, if, well, certainly if they're showing any signs of slowing down or being sluggish, we'd take the um, take the cooling off and let them warm up and sort of finish off at 16, 18 degrees. They'll get up there pretty quick. They're generating a, a lot of heat, you know. And then we are, and then the the tricky part these days really is trying to balance up that sort of final residual sugar in there. So we're sort of de depending on the depending on the vintage and the acidity that we've got in the wines, we would be trying to aim for somewhere in that sort of two and a half to five grams residual sugar and it, you know it's pretty um it's pretty hard to hit it right on the head obviously because you're essentially just trying to slow the ferment down maybe right at the end with a bit of temperature so they could get uh, cooling back onto them even if we'd let them wi wind up to 16 if they're looking like they're just going to charge through and finish dry we would um 
put the put the cooling on and try and slow them down and maybe add sulfur right at the end but we'd prefer to do it with um just temperature and kill the kill the yeast off with temperature and have something sitting around that sort of three to five degrees uh three to five um, grams per liter of residual sugar and then it comes into the into the blending you know so f you know for for us as an example we'd have 50 60 odd sort of tanks i don't actually know the exact number 50 odd tanks of sauvignon blanc at the end of vintage hopefully with a sort of a, a residual sugar sitting around that sort of target of say four as a as an average but we would you know we'd find this year for instance every, everything went dry really fast and we just couldn't stop them so we had a lot of of our early probably half of our harvest went through to total dryness to sort of zero to one residual sugar so once that starts happening we really would try and um, would try and stop things a bit sweeter later on so you try and kill things off at 10 10 rs or 15 or whatever knowing that you're going to need something sweeter to try and balance up all that acidity it's been a that's it, kind of that is a real challenge in winemaking we do we do that essentially for the eu because we're not allowed to add um, sugar as a as a sweetener essentially post fermentation is no sugar additions allowed from EU regulations. Now, for, for the US, you, we are allowed to, but um, yeah, it's been a long, many years since we made wines specifically for different markets. It just gets a little bit too confusing. So essentially, we, we make all of our wines for for the EU because it's the uh, strictest um, in regulations, you know, and the, and the percentages and their winemaking practices. So everything, everything in the winery is made for the EU. So there's never any sort of doubt about, you know, you might set aside a tank for for the US market and then for whatever reason you want to send that to the EU and then if you've added sugar post fermentation it's um it's a it's a problem really how do they know they we get audited all the time <laughs> yeah yeah so we we have uh, all all New Zealand operates if you're a functioning winery here you have to operate with a wine standards management plan and we get audited on that twice a year they'll come in and they'll select a random wine and they'll just follow it from grapes they'll look at your what you've used sprays in the in the vineyard make sure that you've followed all the you know allowed sprays and that you haven't used too much of something or use something that you're not allowed to um, they'll follow that right through through the crush and they'll basically follow those grapes into the bottle and they'll look at what, what we have declared on our label and they'll look at our records and when you know it's it would be very difficult to to cheat the system if you like i suppose which is a good thing. I think. It is a good thing, yeah. Make, makes definitely that residual sugar is makes things a challenge. When when I first started with Tohu, we were this is pre this regulation coming in from the EU, and you could essentially this is what pretty much everyone did. You would just ferment your wine totally dry, which is a lot easier than trying to stop it at a prescribed residual sugar. Um, you'd ferment it, ferment it dry, filter it, get it ready for prep for bottling, warmed up for bottling in your tanks, and. Um, and then you would just trial different levels of residual sugar so you're literally adding cane sugar and you could just balance up your wine to perfection basically you know you'd trial little little half gram ads of sugar until you just had your acid and your sugar balance you know just absolutely spot on and then you'd you know physically add the sugar to the tank mix it in and send her off a bottling which which you, we still are allowed to do for New Zealand and Australia and for the US market but as I said, it just sort of gets a bit. Um, yeah, we just sort of believe that basically, the, if you if you buy a bottle of Kuno or Tohu Sauvignon in America, you're going to buy ex you're going to be getting exactly the same thing in New Zealand or Australia or Thailand or the UK or Europe or wherever. So it sort of keeps things, especially I guess if you, especially if you're promoting 
you know, um, wine show awards or spectator points and stuff like that. It's kind of makes you feel a little bit better that you know that that is exactly the same wine. Uh, so I do have uh, two bottles open. One is the Kono and one is the Tovu. What is the difference between the two? Uh, so it's that it's the um, it's where they come from essentially. They're basically made pretty much exactly the same, like how I how I described them. So they'll be both machine harvested and um, cool fermented in tank. It's really the um, their origin. So the to- so the Tohu is uh, is a single valley. So it's hundred percent from the Awateri Valley, which is the sort of um, very very briefly, I guess the Marlborough is really split into two main valleys that run sort of west east. The Wairau is the main is the biggest valley, and the, where all the original plantings were in Marlborough. So those are sort of the oldest vines, and the, still providing the real the the bulk of the wine from Marlborough. And then you drive over a sort of a, a pass into a southern valley, sort of much like going from Napa to Sonoma, I suppose, on a smaller scale. And um, and then the Awateri runs parallel with the Wairau as well but it is a sort of quite distinct it's got a, a different geological formation to it I suppose it doesn't have the the old river beds running through it it's got a river that runs through it but the um, the soil profile through the hour tree is very sort of consistent there's a deep a deep layer of sort of papa clay and stuff like that so so the Tohu is from the 100% from the Awateri whereas our corner was a, is a blend of Sort of it varies from year to year. I think um, in recent years it's sort of been about sixty or seventy percent from the Arbutary, but then the rest of it will be made up from um, other parts of Marlborough, basically Fairhall and Waihopai and um, and the other sort of southern valleys in the Wairau. So it's a sort of so to me that sort of you know the uh, the, the difference in the in the glass is really I, I see that Cornell Sauvignon looking a lot very sort of traditional sort of more of a um, more of the crowd pleaser Sauvignon I suppose it has all those sort of characteristics of classic Marlborough savvy it picks up the different sub-regions and sort of knits them together whereas the Awateri is sort of unashamedly a single you know an expression of a valley really and the bulk of the of the Tohu is out of our Pinion vineyard which is sort of way up the top as well of the valley in that sort of high high altitude sort of remote site but we're lucky we have you know a bunch of really good growers in the in the Arbutary Valley around our winery as well. So essentially every year, you know, we try and make them all as good as possible, and then we blend, sort of like a top-down blend, I guess. You'd blend up Tohu with um with our vineyard as the backbone of it, which is sort of consistently high performer and sort of sets the style for the Tohu, I suppose, with that sort of minerality and the more of that sort of green green bean sort of um, bell pepper sort of characters come through, and more yeah more of that minerality and less about big sort of in your face tropical characters um, so we blend that up and then essentially we would drop out of that into the Cornell blend which is which is a much larger volume it's like you know four times the size of the Tohu blend yeah so that's the sort of the, the big difference in them is really that sort of the appellation they're coming from yeah I find the Tohu um, a bit spicier you mentioned the green bean it's got that kind of almost jalapeno kind of edge to it a little bit differentiated, um, interestingly. Can Marlborough Sauvignon, Sauvignon Blanc be aged? Well, I have a vineyard manager that works for me that loves old Sauvignon, but most of us don't really agree with him. <laughs> I guess it's, you know, all the, all the things that are attractive about Marlborough Sauvignon you sort of tend to lose with age, which is that sort of fresh acidity and the sort of fresh, f- clean fruit. And I think, you know, they, they, can, they can age, you know, of course, but they do end up in a in a whole different world really you know once you're heading more into those sort of straw and hay characters you can get into that 
um, a can, canned pea sort of asparagus character comes through a, after a, you know, after, I mean it is really sort of three to four years into their life they really lose that sort of freshness so I think unless you're specifically making them to age which is you know, what we, we used to do that with uh, with a barrel fermented version which did age you know quite quite beautifully because they're less about all that sort of fruit so you don't have the the fresh fruit to lose in the first place I guess and you know they've had Lee's contact and they've got a bit of oak to support them as well so those wines and there's a f you know there's a quite a few producers in Melbourne that are that are making those at a certain volume and those will age and can sort of stand up after 10 years but you know most most of our wines we really are making in that sort of fresh style to to um to be drunk early you know and to give you an idea out of, out of that say 200 you know what do I make I made 230,000 cases of Sauvignon this year and I'll make about 200 of 200 not 200,000 200 of the barrel fermented one so it sort of shows you where the where, what the market is looking for I guess of course you make wine to sell it oh yeah and you've got to make stuff you want to drink yourself too I mean we, we as winemakers we do get a bit sort of um you know a bit cynical about Sauvignon because like you say you know it's very sort of predictable and all that sort of stuff but you know we we, we like to remind ourselves of sort of how good they are as well and you know a, a fermenting a winery in Marlborough you know with 90% um, full of fermenting Sauvignon is a, the most amazing smell you'll ever have wandering around a winery that's for sure yeah it's quite uh, quite mind-bogglingly aromatic that's been really fun uh, real insights into Marlborough and Sauvignon Blanc and New Zealand um, so you're in winter so it's when does the harvest begin? No. Oh, March, sort of, sort of mid. Yeah, it used to, it used to be sort of reliably starting in the middle of April, but I think you know, in common with lots of areas around the world now, we're sort of more mid to early March now. So basically, we we would sort of think vintage would really go pretty crazy mid March to sort of mid April. We're, we're done by mid April. So at the moment out there, it's people are just finishing pruning. We've got a little bit of uh, bud break starting to happen in some of our earlier varieties, not really the Sauvignon, but in Chardonnay and Pinot Noir around the place. So the growing season is sort of just getting going really for us, So, which is all a bit scary really because it feels like vintage was only like yesterday and now we're sort of starting to get ready for the next one. And actually one last question. You mentioned uh, machine harvesting is important because you don't have the labour do you have many interns coming in from around the world? Yeah, no, we we do. Well, we we did up until the last two years, I suppose, because our board our borders have been very tight tightly closed. So, but before that, we would um, for for a company our size, we would hire maybe a, a dozen um, a dozen sort of extras for vintage for harvest. So so we would uh, and, and the bulk of those would be from overseas generally, and it'd be maybe a, maybe a third of them would be sort of semi experienced winemakers that are just starting out on their careers you know working around working around the world maybe a third of people would be maybe just finished their studies and had never done a vintage before but sort of keen and all that sort of thing and then about then the remainder of them would be you know like uh, backpackers that are just just want a job to they'll jump on a water blaster and clean floors for eight weeks sort of thing so for, for us a lot of people from the US as well we would always have probably half our people would be coming out of the US you know it's very easy to get working holiday visas for um, people from the states to come to New Zealand they can basically um, turn up and pay $25 and then live in New Zealand for 18 months I think it is and work so so we'd get quite a few of them would stay around for two vintages as well which was pretty handy but yeah we've, I think we've all been surprised because in the last two years you know we thought we were completely screwed because we had no no one's coming in or you know or going anywhere but we sort of managed to 
sort of cobbled together a, a crew out of locals and things, but it's definitely changed the it's changed the feel to the wineries because you've, you're more employing people that are just after a job for sort of you know a couple of months and not necessarily sort of wine geeks or wine people or so it, it's sort of cha- changed the feel of the industry a little bit so it's become a little bit more yeah just people here for work whereas you know in the past you'd <coughs> you'd be exposed to you know winemakers out of Oregon and France and Italy and all that sort of anywhere in the northern hemisphere they're all sort of piling down here for work which was sort of um, which was really good for us and it did it, it was a different sort of culture I think so yeah we're really looking forward to that next year I mean our borders are open again and hopefully we'll get um we'll get a, a good sort of international crew again so because I think all the New Zealanders are fleeing overseas as well at the moment too so you sound like you might want a job for vintage Matthew I'll put you down on the I'll put you down on the maybe list shall I <laughs> <laughs> we'll take anybody mate we're not too yeah. fussy <laughs> and not very um physical so I'm not sure I'd be much help but oh, that's uh, all right we'll find something for you don't worry get me on the maybe list <laughs> yeah. that's been fantastic a uh, real insight into Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc. Really nice to um, meet you virtually, and hopefully I'll get to New Zealand at some point now that the borders are open. If you do, look us up because we like having visitors. We're sort of out in the middle of nowhere, really, so we don't get a lot of visitors. So I think everything in New Zealand's in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it does feel a little, a little bit like that as well. I, I live in the like even more in the middle of nowhere. My nearest neighbours, like maybe uh, a couple of miles away as well, so. I even go into like the little town here and I get sort of slightly culture shock. So, oh well, thank you, Matthew. Great talking to you. And on to you, likewise.